Welcome to Grace, everyone, this weekend. It's good to see you. Welcome, everyone, watching uh, live online. It's good to have you a part of this as well. And uh, it's good to be with you guys um, uh, back after a couple of weeks. Uh, for those of you who were a part of our vision gatherings and uh, part of the Seed Project and know about the, the work that we're doing in Atlanta, uh, we're partnering with our International Missions Agency in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, working to start uh, multicultural ethnic churches there. And so I've been down there quite a bit and uh, hanging out there and seeing all that God has for us. Some really exciting uh, possibilities are opening up. Uh, the staff that's going to go and uh, drive that work is starting to come on board here at Grace. So you're going to meet them here in the next um, couple weeks. The pastors are going to come on and eventually land down there and plant those works. So it's exciting and uh, it's, it was good to be there. It's good to be home. It is humid in Atlanta. It's hot Atlanta. And so I'm really glad that God has called someone else to go there and do that. And I'm really uh, pro supporting them in that process why I stay up here in Northeast Ohio. But it's, it's good to be home and uh, good to be back with you guys again. We're starting a new series this weekend called Jonah. And we're going to take uh, the next number of weeks and we're just going to dig into the book of Jonah and uh, see what God has to tell us there. When you guys think about the story of Jonah, you think of Jonah and the what? The whale. So Jonah is one of those stories in the Bible that if you grew up in church, you certainly know about Jonah. Even if you didn't grow up in church like a bunch of us didn't, it's one of those stories that kind of transcends even kind of the church. And so it's like Noah's Ark or David and Goliath, you know, it's kind of even bigger than the church world. So <clears throat> a lot of people know about Jonah and the whale, or if you grew up with Veggie Tales, Jonah and the giant fish. And so we, we kind of know those stories a little bit. And when we think about Jonah, uh, the book of Jonah, that tends to be what we think about uh, that God uh, bent the laws of nature and caused Jonah to be swallowed by a giant fish. By the way, that's something that God does all the time in the scripture, right? It's not unusual or far fetched that God, who is the author of creation, the, the author of the laws of nature, would bend them. So God raises people from the dead. Jesus rose himself from the dead. He heals people. The sun stood still uh, for Moses. So like all these different things. And so it's not nuts at all that God would utilize a giant fish in this case to deliver his prophet where he wanted him to go. And so we're gonna, we're gonna look at that and understand the book of Jonah. Now, <clears throat> Jonah was a real person. So the book of Jonah is not an allegory. It's, it's a biography, right, or a story. And so it's a, he was a real person. He shows up other places in the Bible. He shows up in the book of 2 Kings as well. And Jonah also actually shows up in extra biblical history. Uh, so outside the Bible, he's there. So he really did live. He really did exist. The, the story of Jonah really is the story of Jonah. But most of the time, especially if you grew up in church, if you didn't grow up in church, you're at, you're at an advantage with this one. If you grew up in church, uh, in my view, that we tend to emphasize the wrong thing in the book of Jonah. So we tend to emphasize Jonah's disobedience and winding up in the fish and kind of that sensational part of the story, which is real, but it's definitely the part that jumps out to you. I would argue that Jonah, the person of Jonah and the life and the obedience of Jonah, is actually not the focal point of the book of Jonah. I would argue that the, the person of Jonah is a subplot in the book of Jonah and that the main point of the book of Jonah, the main character is God and God's love and God's passion to save and God's desire for, to forgive and his relentless pursuit of lost people. 
And when you look at the book of Jonah, that's what jumps out to you, that God is going to accomplish taking his message of forgiveness of sin to people who are lost. And the sub-point is uh, a, a stubborn or disobedient servant that God has to work in supernatural ways to get to participate with him. So as we look at the book here over the next few weeks, that's what we're going to be looking at is, is the heart of God and the mind of God. And then what the Bible says is that Scripture is like a mirror for us. So when I, when I learn the Bible, it's, I'm looking into a mirror and it's reflecting what I'm really like or where my heart is out of sync with God's. And then as we look at the heart and the mind or the character of God, then what I do is I see where I'm offline with him, I move and I adjust to who God would want me to be. And I allow him to change my mind and ultimately my heart and sync my life up with him. So I think that's what's gonna happen for us as we move through the book of Jonah. I think we're gonna see some things about ourselves. I know I did, some of them were good, a lot of them were kind of ugly when I got looking at Jonah's life, but then I see the heart of God and start asking the questions, God, I wanna be in sync with you what do you want me to do? How do I need to do that so that I can line up with you, all right? So let's dig at this a little bit. If you got your Bibles, grab them, open up to the book of Jonah. If you don't have one, there's some in the chairs. It's page uh, 645 in those Bibles in the chairs. Or if you want to use your, uh, your electronic device, uh, you can grab the Grace Church app. If you go out to the app store, uh, you can find that and then hit live on that and all the notes and all the verses and everything are right there, and we'll dig into it. Before I, before I uh, dig into the scripture directly, let me just give you a quick overview, just in case you're not familiar with Jonah, okay? So here, here's the, the book of Jonah in a nutshell. Uh, Jonah was a prophet, and the prophet in the Old Testament, were, were, these were not guys that like read the future, so they weren't looking into a crystal ball and prophesying about your future. That's not what the word means. The, the word prophet in the Bible means a proclaimer of truth, so they would tell people God's truth. So Jonah was a prophet, and especially in the Old Testament, God would speak directly to people, and then he would say, you take this message from me and you deliver it to these people over, over there, right? So especially in the Old Testament, we didn't have the, the wholeness of God's word. So now we would look at the Bible and we would say the Bible says in the Old Testament, God would speak directly to these people. So that was Jonah. Jonah did that. That was like his job, right? And so he was a prophet of the Lord. In the book of 2 Kings, God said, Jonah, you go to the king of Israel and tell him this, right? So Jonah went and prophesied or proclaimed God. God's truth to the king of Israel. So Jonah was a prophet. God comes to Jonah and says, I want you to go to Nineveh. Uh, Jonah was not excited about that. I'll tell you why here in a minute. And so what he did was he rebelled against God. And instead of going to Nineveh, he literally went the exact opposite direction of Nineveh. He hops in a boat. He's on his way as far away from Nineveh as he can get. God wants that to stop, so while he's on the boat, God causes this big storm to kick up. The storm kicks up, freaks everybody on the boat out. And so they all wake, wake up, and all the sailors on the boat, everybody starts praying to their individualized God. Uh, they wake Jonah up, and they're like, you pray too, we need to cover as many, some, some God somewhere is honked off, and so everybody like pray to your God, right? Jonah wakes up, kind of goes upstairs and kind of recognizes immediately that he's the problem. So he kind of raises his hand. He's like, it's, it's my God. <laughs> he's, and he's honked off, right? And so everybody's trying to sacrifice. Finally, Jonah says, guys, what you should do, if you want, this, if you want the storm to die down and want to live, you need to throw me overboard. Well, at first, nobody liked that solution. Then about 10 minutes into the storm, they were like, okay, toss him, right? So they, they throw Jonah overboard 
The storm immediately shuts down, and this then is where God bends the laws of nature, sends this giant fish that swallows Jonah, and Jonah stays a few days in the belly of this fish. The fish does a U-E, goes right to Nineveh, where God wanted him to be in the first place, and vomits him out on the shores of Nineveh, which is a little life principle for you. You can do what God says, or you can smell like fish puke the rest of your life, right? So he vomits him out on the shores of Nineveh, Jonah then does what God told him to do in the first place, and he preaches or he tells the Ninevites, listen, you're in sin, you need to repent and turn to God, and they do it. So they repent of their sin, they start following the one true God, and it would be fantastic if the story ended there because everybody would kneel, everybody would accept Jesus, it would fade to black, the credits would roll, it would be terrific, there'd be a song involved, right? But that's not what happened, that's not the end of the story. Jonah resents the fact that they repented. So the end of the book of Jonah is Jonah complaining to God that he was merciful. And he's angry at God for not bringing what he calls calamity or him, God not wiping out the Ninevites. So it's this complicated story and this is where you, you see this, this thread of humanity through it. You see Jonah in his heart and in his mind responding maybe some of the ways that we do to the love of God, and the story is this unrelenting, passionate, fierce love of God that is determined to bring salvation, and kind of the the human frailty point of that, that God's plan in humanity, uh, us kind of not wanting it or not participating in it, okay? So that's the broad story we're going to look at. Now, let's dig directly into the the text here. So if you got your Bibles, Jonah chapter 1, and we're just going to look at the first three verses this weekend. So Jonah chapter 1 says this, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, verse two, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. And then the storm hits and the fish comes and all that kind of stuff. But I just wanna focus on these first three things here, all right? So God comes to Jonah and he says this, verse two, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. It's fascinating what God says there. The wickedness of Nineveh. So whatever was happening in Nineveh was not run-of-the-mill sin. Uh, whatever, it was not like people struggling with their selfishness and maybe I should be more compassionate. None of that. Whatever was happening in Nineveh w- was so intense that when the Lord was watching or looking over the earth, which the Bible says he does, somehow the, there was like a red light flashing in Nineveh where the wickedness of the people as a group was so egregious that it came up before the Lord. And the Lord, in essence, was saying, if they do not repent of this, I'm going to destroy this city. Now, it's fascinating. When, when you look at the idea of wickedness in the Old Testament, especially when it relates to cities or nations or kings, when God calls something wicked, he was kind of looking at certain sins that really, really, really jumped out to him. So for instance, when God called something wicked, uh, he almost always would identify sexual immorality. And he would look and say that they're sexually immoral, that they're, 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 there's incest there, uh, they're, there's, they're acting on homosexual instincts, they're acting on heterosexual instincts outside of marriage. There's what we would call pornography 
Like there's just like sexually supercharged cultures. There's like sex everywhere, right? Um, there, there is, there is uh, uh, prostitution and it's accepted. There is sex as a religious worship. Most pagan or godless religions, uh, the sex act was tied to worship. They literally would go to the temple, hire a prostitute, have sex with them, and they would be worshiping their false god. So God would look at things like that, and he would look and say, sexual immorality, that, that these people are wicked. The city is wicked. The nation is wicked. And then he would look at other things, and a lot of times like human sacrifice or some kind of blood sacrifice would be tied to wickedness. Um, infanticide, uh, we, we get rid of the children because they're inconvenient. What we would call a, abortion is infanticide in the Bible, like we just get rid of our kids. Um, idol worship, like some guy erected like a 90-foot idol and said, worship me, would be something God would call wicked. Here's a big one, oppression of the poor. It's all through the Bible. God would call that wicked when the wealthy oppress the poor. A lack of respect for human life. So this, this woman is property or this child is worthless until they're 15 kind of a thing. Uh, slavery is always deemed as wicked to God. The people being enslaved. Uh, uh, human arrogance, what we would call humanism. So as a human being, I look and say, I am my own source of truth. I am, in essence, my own God. If you look at, uh, back in the Old Testament, at the Tower of Babel, the Tower of Babel had a lot to do with humanism, that we, we, we're more powerful than God and we're gonna let him know. So God would look at things like that, right? And there's other stuff too. And he would look and say, there's a collective city or a collective nation or group of people that are behaving in these defiant arrogant, rebellious ways against the heart and the mind of God, and God would kind of title that wicked. Uh, there's parts in the scripture where there were cities that did that, that hardened their heart, and God judged them and destroyed them. So like the city of Sodom, uh, the city of Gomorrah, they would not relent, they would not repent, God destroyed it. Uh, later on in the Bible, there was a city called Babylon, and it was so wicked and so opposed to God that God destroyed it, said it'll never, it'll never exist again. So that was Nineveh. It's in kind of line with that thinking. There's Sodom, Gomorrah, Babylon, Nineveh. And this great city, the, the collective rebellion and the collective hard-heartedness and the collective kind of arrogance toward God came up before the Lord and he looked and said, I, I will not tolerate this anymore. I cannot, my holiness, my righteousness, my judgment, my justice cannot tolerate this anymore. And what did God do? It's fascinating what he did. So he, did, he didn't like, you know, throw a meteor at it. He didn't like, you know, just label it evil, call it Michigan and move on, you know, kind of thing. He didn't, what, what, did, what did he do? This righteous, just, holy, unyielding God looked to his servant, his prophet. And he looked and said, Jonah, these people are in egregious sin. You need to go and preach to them. Look at chapter, uh, verse two, that's what he says. Go and preach to the great city of Nineveh. Preach against it because its wickedness has come up against me. You go, Jonah, you know, the, you know the truth of their sin 
and you know the truth of my holiness, and you know the truth of my compassion, grace, and forgiveness, so you dislodge where you're at, and you go to them and preach. Now, it's remarkably similar to what Jesus says in what we call the Great Commission. Jesus looks at his followers. If, you're a, if you've accepted the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and he's defining and directing your life, then you're a follower of Jesus Christ. So Jesus looks at all of his followers and he says, now this is what you do. He doesn't say retreat. He doesn't say build a fortress, dig a moat, get away from yucky people. What Jesus always says is if somebody's in sin, if they're being wicked, go to them. So the Great Commission is you go into all the world, you preach the gospel, You baptize and you make disciples. It's remarkably similar to what he says to Jonah because this is the heart and the pattern of God. When someone's in sin, when someone's in rebellion, the heart, the passion of God is still to bring about redemption. So he says, Jonah, you you move and go. Don't stand over here and analyze. Don't think, oh man, you know, the country's going to pot kind of thing. I knew it, I knew it. You get up and you go and you go and you preach. Now that word preach is an important word in the Bible because the word preach in the Bible does not mean shout down. It does not even mean stand on a platform and talk to a bunch of people at once like a preacher does, right? The word preach in the Bible means to proclaim truth. So I'm gonna go and I'm gonna preach. I'm gonna tell you the whole truth of God. I'm gonna let you know everything that's tied in to who God is and what he's like. It's what we would call, in in today's church, we would call it contending for the gospel. Jonah, you go and you tell the gospel or the story of Jesus. You preach against Nineveh. Now, here's the thing with the gospel. The gospel is holistic. So the gospel starts with bad news, right? The gospel starts with bad news. The bad news of the gospel is that you're a sinner. You are wicked, so he says, Jonah, you go and you preach against them. Make sure you let them know that they're wicked because there's people in Nineveh, they don't know they're wicked. They're just doing what they were raised to do. There's other people in Nineveh that, that forgot that they're wicked. They, they, a long time ago, but they've been in sin so long that God has seared their conscience and they're just kind of numb to it. Then there's other people in Nineveh, they're just straight up don't care anymore. You go and you preach against them you let them know the gospel we would say today and start with their sin you you're sinning against god well then the gospel moves on and and the gospel would say you're a sinner everybody by the way is born that way the bible says and the wages of that sin or the consequences of that sin is spiritual death if you don't turn from your sin, you're going to die spiritually because God is a righteous God and a holy God and a just God and he will judge you and there is a place called hell and he's even a God of wrath and you're gonna face all that if you don't turn from your sin. Then you get into the good news of the gospel. But the good news is there is a savior For us, it's Jesus, right? There's a God who loves you. There's a God who wants you to repent. There's a God who is eager to be kind, who's eager to forgive, who's eager to extend grace. And if you repent of your sin, that word repent, all that word repent means is to turn around. If you turn from your sin and run to God instead of away from God, that loving God is eager to receive you, eager to forgive you, and eager to extend his compassion to you. So Jonah, 
get up and go do that. Go preach. Tell the truth, but tell the whole truth. Don't just do servant evangelism. Don't just be kind. Don't just be set apart because our family lives differently. You go and you tell the whole truth with gentleness and respect, the Bible would say in the New Testament, but tell them of their sin and then tell them of the heart of God and his eagerness and desire to forgive and let his kindness draw them to repentance. Jesus, to us in the church, says something remarkably the same. He calls it being salt and light. He says this in Matthew chapter 14 and 15. He says this, chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. He says, you, that's, if you're a follower of Christ, this is you. You are the light of the world. A city on the hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Instead, they set it on the lampstand. It gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. If I'm interacting with Ninevites in my life, if I'm interacting with the wickedness of a culture, I go and I shine. I influence. How? By proclaiming the gospel, by preaching I might do that over a cup of coffee. I might do that on a platform. Just depends. But it's, it's sharing the truth of God. It's not a Facebook argument. It's not a Twitter feed. It's not your story on Snapchat. It's an interaction. It's, it's preaching the gospel, the whole of it, the bad news and the good news. Jonah, that great city of Nineveh, whose wickedness has come up before me, that is my answer to their sin. You go and you tell them of who I am. Now, it's fascinating that the servant of God, the prophet of God, the one who knows the truth of God and who had received it for himself, then refuses to do it. So you get to verse three, you get this very clear directive from God, right? You go and preach. So what did Jonah do? Verse three, but Jonah ran away from the Lord and he headed to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, he found a ship, bought a ticket, got on board and he sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now why would the prophet of God, the keeper of truth, the one sent by God to lost people, why would he go the opposite direction? So you start thinking about that a little bit. You're like, oh, I don't know. Maybe Jonah was afraid. Maybe he was afraid of the Ninevites. Well, I don't think that was true because he didn't flee from the Ninevites. He ran from the Lord. Well, maybe, maybe he didn't know what to say. He just didn't know what to say. Well, he's a prophet. I mean, he, you know, he did this quite a bit. He knew what to say last time God told him. So God told him what to say. I don't think that was it. Maybe he wasn't equipped. Maybe he wasn't equipped. Maybe he didn't know Ninevite, you know, theology. Uh, I don't, God didn't say go argue. He said go tell. Like, I don't think that was it. He was running from the Lord. God said go and preach, and Jonah ran and fled from the Lord. Now, why would the prophet of God do that? Well, the answer is actually pretty ugly, Jonah ran from the Lord and refused to obey God. Jonah became the very rebel that he was sent to confront. He did it because he resented the people of Nineveh and he wanted God to destroy them. Now Nineveh, let me just give you some background here. Nineveh is the capital of a kingdom called Assyria. 
and Jonah was an Israelite. The Assyrians and the Israelites had a very ugly history with each other. It, it goes way back to this peace treaty that was made between the two kings that Assyria consistently violated. So Jonah would have grown up with this. The Assyrians would have come in and oppressed the Israelite people. They would have stole their wealth. They would have robbed their temple. They, they would have wiped out their grain. And the Assyrians were a, a particularly cruel oppressor. And one of the things that they would do in order to to demoralize their enemy is they would mock their enemy's gods. So if their enemy's god said one thing, the Assyrians would do the, the exact opposite to prove kind of the ineptness of their god. So if the god of Israel said never wear a red t-shirt, all the Assyrians would ever do is wear a red t-shirt, right? If the god of Israel said, you know, uh, don't eat croissants on Tuesday, they would only serve, and then they would make the Israelites eat croissants on Tuesday. They were evil, wicked people, cheered for Michigan. It was ugly, right? So the whole nine years, and so that's what they did. So Jonah grew up resenting this. Then what happened is the Assyrians would come in and they would control the government. Now the government's working against the value of the Israelites. They would get a hold of the schools and now they're teaching Israelite children about false gods. And then what happened is the, the children and the grandchildren of the Israelites were now adopting the Assyrian culture more than the Israelite culture and kind of making it their own. They were forgetting the traditions of the Israelite culture. They were spawning the, the traditions of the Israelite culture. They started, to, they started to intermarry. Like, you know, your son's now dating like an Assyrian girl and you know what they're like. And so Jonah watches all this happen, and he watches wickedness, real wickedness. And he watches it affect the people that he loves, and he watches it affect the country that he loves, and he watches it be a real affront to the God that he knows is the one true God. And when God looked at Jonah and said, you need to go to the great city of Nineveh, and you need to preach against it, Jonah thought this, I don't want to do that because I want you to destroy them. They have it coming. They deserve it. They did it. In fact, it would like make my day if you wiped Nineveh off the face of the earth. Now, how do we know that's what Jonah was thinking? Well, he actually says it. So if you flip the, flip the Bible maybe a page or so to chapter 4, what happens is Jonah goes and he preaches and then invites to re repent. God relents and, and they start following the one true God. And Jonah chapter four, verse one, after that happened, the Bible says, but to Jonah this seemed very wrong. What? That they repented and God relented. And he became angry that God forgave them and received them. And he prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are gracious and compassionate, God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. I read that and I was like, Jonah, nobody says that out loud, right? We think that stuff, but you never say it, not to God at least. He looks at God, he says, this is exactly why I tried to go the other direction and you put me in a fish, I knew it, I knew it. I knew if I went and told them about their sin and told them about your love and told them about the offer of forgiveness, I knew that they might take it and I knew you would back off and I was all hyped up for the hailstones wiping them out. Why did he run? He, he hated them. 
He hated what they were. He hated what they stood for. He hated what they were doing. He hated how it was affecting him. And were they wicked? Oh, yeah. Was some of that anger righteous? Oh, yeah. But what was the heart of God? What was the heart of God? Why did God say go and preach instead of Jonah tell all the Israelites to pull back 10 miles, there's going to be a blast zone? Because the heart of God is to extend grace and forgiveness. The heart of God is to point out sin so that repentance can be engaged in. And the heart of God is to draw people to himself, not push people away. This is still the heart of God today. Second Peter reiterates that. The apostle says, do, do not forget this one thing, dear friends, With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God is unrelenting in his love and his passion to save. He doesn't want anybody to perish. He wants everyone to come to repentance. Why doesn't God just let everybody go to heaven? Because he's a just God, a holy God, a righteous God. He can't tolerate it. But his heart isn't to deep fry everybody. His heart is to proclaim the truth. Tell the gospel. You're a sinner, but I love you. And if you'll repent of your sin and come to me, I I don't want you to go to hell. I don't want you to perish. I want you to be connected with me because God is a patient God. Now listen. The patience of God is one of the hardest things to deal with if you're a follower of God. Because if God wasn't patient, it would actually give an easy answer to all the deep philosophical questions about God's character. So when you get into questions like, why do good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people? If, if, if God cares about us, then why, why does this good person have cancer and ISIS is getting away with everything? Why doesn't God give them the plague? Why do good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people? Well, if God just wasn't patient, then that would never be the case. Every time you did something bad, pss, done, deep fry. If God is a loving God, why is there evil in the world? That's a great question. If God wasn't patient, we wouldn't have to wrestle with that question because he would just wipe evil out all the time. And it would be like, see, you're bad, you get fried. You're good, you don't. The patience of God is a very, very difficult thing to explain and to live with and to deal with. The holiness of God is a lot easier because God said it. It's in the book. Here's a chapter and verse. I posted it on Facebook, probably out of context to prove you wrong. And the, the holiness of God sometimes comes out on list. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious, right? So sometimes it's even on a list. It's really, really easy to lay out the holiness of God. It's very difficult to explain the patience of God, especially when we don't want it applied to someone else. I want the patience of God. I need the patience of God. But those wicked people, 
You're being judgmental. No, they're really wicked. Why is God patient with them? See. The moral of the story of the book of Jonah is not that if you're a Christian and you disobey, you're going to wind up in a fish and you better watch it. That's not the story of Jonah. The moral of the story of Jonah is this, that when God looks at humanity, he loves us in our sin. He passionately wants us to know his heart. He will freely receive us when we repent of our sin. And he is a holy and righteous and just God, so there will be an accounting for our sin. But he is also equally a compassionate and gracious and forgiving God, so there is an offer of forgiveness of our sin. And the moral of the story of Jonah is not if I disobey God, I might wind up in a fish. The moral of the story of the book of Jonah is that God so passionately loves lost people that if his servants won't do what he's called them to do, he will cause a fish to intervene to accomplish his purpose. The people of Nineveh were gonna hear about the heart of God. And Jonah, he's just gonna smell like a fish the rest of his life. But the will and the passion and the compassion of God is going to be on display because he wishes that none would perish and that would all would come to repentance. Wickedness breaks the heart of God. Wickedness grieves the heart of God. And will the wicked receive judgment? Yes. And can the wicked access mercy and forgiveness? Yes. The question for the follower of Jesus is not how do I stay out of a fish? The question for the follower of Jesus is how do I view the Ninevites in my life? And does my heart for them align with God's heart for them? One of my favorite passages in the whole Bible is Romans chapter 10. You can flip over there if you want. It's page 788. Romans chapter 10, one of the reasons why I like it is the whole gospel is kind of like, you know, condensed right here. Romans chapter 10, page 788. Just start with uh, verse 9. If we declare, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. The scripture says anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame for there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him for everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. It's the gospel. And then there's this life-changing question. How then can they call on the one of whom they do not believe in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they're sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. When God sees the wickedness of our world, he, he's not doing a 10 count. Do one more time. When God sees the wickedness and the lostness of our world, 
the pattern of God is to look to his people. And the message to his people has always been the same. You go and preach. Go tell them. Tell them that they're rebelling. They may not even know it, or they might. And tell them that there's consequences for sin. Tell them that if they reject me now, eternity is simple, simply the, the extenuation of that trajectory of their life. That's what judgment in hell is. You don't want to be with God, you're not going to be with God ever. You, God kind of gave you what you wanted. But tell them there is a way of escape. There is a Savior. And if they would repent, if they just turn around, they're not going to spend the rest of their life trying to square up with God. But there's grace and there's mercy and there's forgiveness and he will cleanse and make them new. But you have to go. Because I will not let that message be muted even by disobedient servants. This will be accomplished. So let me ask you these questions. Here's the first one. Have you dealt with your own wickedness? And that's what the Bible says. The Bible says that all sin and all fall short of the glory of God. The one thing that every human being has in common is we're sinners. It's our nature. Nobody ever taught you to lie. Nobody ever taught you to be selfish. Nobody ever taught you to be deceitful. We, we do that naturally. And the Bible says that when we sin, we rebel against God, we're an enemy of God in our heart. It separates us from God because he is righteous, perfect, holy. He can't tolerate it. But God looks at us and he sees that we're sinners. But he didn't despise us, he didn't cut us off, he didn't move away and live in a commune. What did he do? He sent his only son. He came for us. And when we agree with God that we're a sinner, and we agree that Jesus is the only way of salvation, he said it. He said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. You can't get to the Father unless you go through me. I'm the path of salvation. Christ stepped out of heaven. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross. He paid a debt he did not owe for those of us who owe a debt that we cannot pay. It's called the substitutionary atonement. He died in my place. He paid the penalty that I owe. And he offers forgiveness, but there's a catch. There's one catch. The catch to receive forgiveness is repentance. I turn from my sin. I ask for the gift of God. I agree with God what he says about me. I agree with God what he says about himself. And that God is not gonna make you pay penance the rest of your life. He is faithful, he is just to cleanse you of all unrighteousness and to forgive you. And it's how we interact with God, it's how we go to heaven. If you've never dealt with your own wickedness, I've had to deal with it. Everybody who's a follower of Christ has to admit that. And then turn to Christ for forgiveness. I encourage you to do that. You pray a prayer of repentance. Don't worry about what to say. Worry about meaning it. And pray to Christ. Confess your sin. 
and ask for his forgiveness. Have you ever dealt with your own wickedness? Right? On purpose, cognitively, have you ever decided to follow God? Now here's the second question. Do you love the people that God loves? This is where the, the book of Jonah is a mirror. Do you love the people God loves? Look at, look. When God looks at our world, he sees wickedness. There's wickedness in our world. What happened in Dallas when those police officers were assassinated this week, that is wicked. What happened in Orlando when a terrorist went in and mowed down people at the nightclub, that is wicked. I read an article yesterday that they, they estimate that ISIS has 3,000 sex slaves, girls from four-year-old up that they barter with and sell. That is wicked. Terrorism is wicked. People who have authority over other people and they misuse that authority and take their lives unjustly, that is wicked. There is wickedness all around us. There are wicked people all around us, and this is what happens, and all church, be careful with this. Especially during a political season, what happens is these events happen, and everybody withdraws to their corners. And what they do is they start blaming each other, and if this would not have happened, if you would have done, this would not have happened, if you would have, you don't see my cause, I don't see your cause, and we'll blame each other and negate the fact that it's the wicked heart of man that drives it all. And as a follower of Jesus Christ, when I am analyzing and thinking through and processing the effects of wickedness in my world. I am not to come at it from my personal opinion and position. I'm to come at it from the heart and the mind of my Savior. And when I look at the wickedness of the world, I have my opinions and that's fine. And I have my political points of view and vote for whoever you want. But as a follower of Jesus Christ, what defines me and directs me and aligns me is the heart of my Savior, not the opinions of my culture. And when you look at the heart of the Savior and his view of lost people, it is always go and preach, never run and hide. Do you love the lost people in your life the way that Christ does? Do I, do I look at these guys and say, they, I, I agree with their morals, they don't deserve it. These guys, I don't agree with theirs, they do. Really? You're not a sexual sinner too? God loves those men and women in that nightclub. He loves those police officers. He loves those women tracked in, in, in sex slavery. He loves ISIS. And will he deal with everyone? Yes, he will. But what is my response? No one's sin is more egregious to God than mine. And he stepped out of heaven and he came to earth to seek and to save me. And I love John three seventeen. Christ did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Why didn't Jesus come to condemn the world? Because he didn't need to. We condemn ourselves. I'm a sinner. 
So is the heart and the mind of Christ forming my response? And here's the last question. It, the question of the book of Jonah is not how do I stay out of a fish? The question is how do I interact with the Ninevites in my life? People that I hate, what Jesus calls our enemies. Do I love my enemy? Those people who stand, they stand against everything I believe in. Do I love them? These people who violate everything that means everything to me. Do I love them? I'm not a condoning or accepting anything because I'm going to preach against their sin, but there's a whole story to the gospel. And it's not just the holiness of God. It's also his compassion, his grace, and forgiveness. And the message to God's people is always go and preach. It's never withdrawal and condemn. When I read the book of Jonah, it could be called the book of Jeff. Because when I look at Jonah's attitudes, I realize pretty quickly I have a lot of the same. And what triumphs it all? The passion, the fierceness of a holy, just, righteous, compassionate, grace-filled, loving, forgiving God. And this is what I want us to do. I want us to take the next few minutes and, and I, I want you guys to be still. I, I really want you to be still. Don't get up for another cup of coffee. Don't go get the kids. Don't rush off to the melt. You're gonna wait for an hour anyways. It's just grilled cheese. Make it at home, right? So it's just, just chill out and be still. I, I bet you that the majority of us have not spent 10 minutes alone with God this week. So let's just be with God and be still and be settled. The band has an amazing song they're gonna, they're gonna sing. So we can download the truth of that. We can ignore it and just pray to God. You can worship alone, whatever you wanna do. But I, I want us to just rest here for a minute and ask the Holy Spirit to just bang around in your heart. Ask him to show you the parts of your heart which are not aligned with Christ, whatever they are. And then give him the freedom to adjust you, not making God who we want him to be, but God making us who he calls us to be, okay? So we're gonna spend some time in prayer and the rest of our time together in service, and let's just be with the Lord and utilize these, these few minutes. Jesus, we love you. Help us right now. We invite you to have this, this free range in us. Holy Spirit, take your, the word of God and empower it within us. Convict us, correct us, teach us through what we've learned of you today. God, give us your heart. We, we can stand up for what's right and love the people who are doing wrong at the same time. You do it every second of every day. And so align us with you, God. Change us, help us, empower us and work at us even now. Jesus, we ask for your help in this. Amen.